Well, welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. I'll have to excuse myself a little bit this time because I had a skiing accident here in the Alps, but I'm with a friend who's had a great journey as an entrepreneur and angel investor, Neil MacArthur. So Neil, give us a bit about your background. Yeah. Hi, Peter, and uh, welcome, everybody. I was born in a place called Earlham in Manchester, which is in Salford. My dad was a steel worker and my mum was a librarian. Went to a secondary school and following secondary school, took an apprenticeship with uh, British Nuclear Fuels as a, a design engineer. And following the completion of that, I went to university and studied computer science and telecommunications. Finished university in 79, went back to the nuclear industry briefly till 1981. And then together with a great friend, Graham Chisnor, we set up an engineering business called Thermal Engineering. This was really producing control systems, advanced mechanical systems, mainly in nuclear, but in petrochemical as well and a bit of pharmaceutical. We ran that business really till the mid-90s. And then in about 96, the government really signalled the end of the big investment in nuclear fuel plant and reprocessing. So we looked to change the business quite substantially. Before we go on to that, you went to university in Essex, but you moved back up to the northwest to build the business where you now live, don't you? Yes, certainly. I moved straight back to the northwest, so I've never really moved too far from where I was born, to be honest. So did you have a bit of corporate life before you became an entrepreneur? Only in the nuclear industry as a design engineer. You worked for them as an apprentice and then two years post-university. And then really we got stuck into the business in 81, so, so only 25 at the time. And what triggered you to do that? Well, I think it was always going to happen. As a kid, I'd got a potato round, you know, I was earning money left, right and centre. I was always buying and selling things. I think there was a bit in there, as there is with most entrepreneurs, really. Good. OK, well, let's go back to the story of this first business. The engineering business, I mean, we did literally set it up in a shed. And in those days, it perhaps wasn't just done the same way as it is today. You tended to just work with your own capital and just try and grow from your profits each year. And we did that for 15 years. The great side of that is you don't half learn and you're very careful with money and certainly every pound's a prisoner. The downside is it takes quite a bit of time to build up the capital, but we did that uh, up to 96. And then, as I said, the nuclear industry really went through a shocking phase and, and they were our core customer. We did a fairly major survey of the industry and found out that we were about as good as it got in systems engineering and our life wasn't going to get much better. So we decided to reinvent the company. And there's a great bit of business school theory that you should always go left or right or up or down, but certainly not diagonally across the decision tree. And we went straight across. We changed industries completely. We went from nuclear engineering to telecommunications. Did you sell the nuclear business off? Or? Not initially, no. We set the telecoms business up in 96 and we ran it really with the free cash flow. We had 20 grand of free cash flow coming out of the engineering business per month. And that was the limit of the investment in telecoms. Wow. So we ran that for a year or so. And then we did a joint venture with a, a company called Martin Doors, who was a much more focused sales organization. Bearing in mind, we were all engineers and we'd built some quite good technically savvy products or services. And uh, once we partnered with a sales organization, we managed to get some growth in the business. And, uh, you know, as we'll see as we go on here, you know, it really took off. But uh, once we knew that it was really going to take off, we then disposed of the engineering business. So we had an exit from the engineering and that's still going today. It's split two ways. Part of it's Babcock International, which is in nuclear still and is actually now doing quite well because the industry's come back. And the other is Brooks, which is a pharmaceutical automation business. So that left us with a telecoms business. And which you called Opal Telecom. We called it Opal, yes. 
And as this story unfolds, you'll see that uh, we tend to remember all the successes in life, but we actually set up three telecoms businesses. And, you know, one of them survived and thrived and two of them withered on the vine. But we tend to forget about the, <laughs> the ones that didn't go so well and focus on the ones that did, really. And so what were you doing? What was Opal Telecom or what made it <clears throat> successful? The great thing about Opal is that, that what made us go into telecoms was whenever you're trying to start a business, you're looking for some disruption in the marketplace. And disruption can come a number of ways. In our case, we've got regulatory disruption. So the government decided to deregulate telecoms. In those days, it was only BT and cable and wireless and opened up to competition. So we got deregulation. We've got a big growth industry in telecoms. So you could see growth. And there's an awful lot of technology involved. And there was big changes going on in telecoms technology. So you've got three fairly major disruptive events there. So, you know, you've got to follow in wind when you've got that kind of opportunity. And was this landline or mobile or both? No, this was fixed line telecoms. So we applied for a license to Ofcom to operate a switch telecom service. And of course, in those days, it was voice. Mm. It's before the days of data over telephony. Um, so we were building business to business services. And essentially what we were doing is building computer applications on the back of telephone exchanges to route voice calls, record voice calls, manage voice calls for call centers and small businesses and route international traffic. We came pretty savvy and, you know, as the new kids on the block, really. And you sold it in 02. So how big was it at that point? Oh, crikey. Before you get to the sale piece, you've got to go through the attempted float because in 1999, we had this massive dot-com boom. And in technology, you couldn't do anything wrong. We had a business with Martin Dawes. I think our combined turnover at the time was, I'm guessing, 30 million, something like that. And we were encouraged to float the business. So we merged the two businesses together, Martin Dawes Telecom, our joint venture business, which had the technology involved in it, and Opal. And we called it Opal as it happened. And we set about floating the business, which was being managed by Deutsche Bank. We were raising... 30 million of cash to develop the business. We had a midpoint value on the business of 256 million pounds by some amazing guy in Deutsche Bank who did a discounted cash flow that you couldn't believe <laughs> and certainly you wouldn't believe today. It was a piece of fiction then and it certainly would be today. <laughs> but off we went on the roadshow. We raised the money, a drop of a hat, no problem at all. We got into the last week of the roadshow. We were up in Edinburgh. The market turned. So when was this? Late 2000? This two? was early 2000. This would be probably about April 2000. And in a space of a couple of months, you went from not being able to do anything wrong to not being anything right. Deutsche Bank stopped the float because they said people were pulling the offers while the market settled. Of course, the market never settled. The float never happened. So instead of raising 30 million, we spent a million quid we didn't have. Right, yes. <laughs> not a great start. But life got a bit better. We did the most amazing deal with Royal Bank of Scotland about three months later, who rescued us from the arms of some venture capitalists who were going to severely dilute us. And you need to listen to this because this is a deal that you would not hear today. But RBS actually lent us £25 million with £8 million of security for a fee of £5 million for 12 months. So we were now 30 million in debt, 31 to be precise. We got 8 million of assets and we were EBITDA negative. But the deal was, if we got an EBITDA positive, they'd renew on a lesser fee. And sure enough, we ran the business for a year. We got an EBITDA positive. They renewed for a much smaller fee, only a million and a half. <laughs> so they'd now had six and a half million of fees. Mind you, we hadn't paid them. They were just racking the debt up. Right. And then we bumped into Charles Dunstan's group, Carphone Warehouse, 
who wanted to get into fixed line and we tried to get them to sell the service. Charles is ever for the deal doer, you know, convinced me that he got on the stock market, we hadn't, it was probably better we did a deal. So we did a deal and we merged Opal into Carphone Warehouse in November, don't remember it well, but it was November the 6th, 2002. <laughs> And what a great deal it was. Yeah, I think it's in the public domain. It's just over a hundred yeah. million or so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. And we took half cash and half shares. So right. we rolled the dice. Right, right. All of us. And, and paid uh, back RBS, no doubt, at some oh, point. Oh, yeah, RBS got paid back at that point. And, of course, they picked up a fantastic fee. Yeah. But in fairness, we hadn't diluted. It was the right thing to do at the time, but it was a bit racy and a bit dodgy. And you would not a chance of getting that out of a bank today, of course. But, you know, that's where the thing then really took off. And then did they rename Opal Talk Talk? Is that what happened? Yeah, the, the idea was to take it into Carphone because they were a retailer principally mm. of mobile phones. So we took it into Carphone. We wanted to go into residential. At the time, we were mainly business to business. So we renamed it Talk Talk, give it more of a residential sort of feel, really, and then started growing the business. We kept the Opal name for the business division, mm. which is still going today. And we started setting about selling voice services into residential. And we're using off-peak capacity in the business equipment, really, to drive the market. And, you know, it went really, really well. But the big eureka moment, I think, came for us in 2006. The business was certainly growing well and Carphone was doing well. But we wanted to get into broadband. Mm. And, you know, it was obviously the future. And the board were very keen for us to build a, a broadband network. And we weren't so keen on it because we didn't like the technology at the time. We ran a telephony network and we needed an IP data network. And fortunately, we were able to just ride the cusp of a wave of, of converged telecommunications, um, IP and, and voice called Next Generation Networking. Because I'd use ADSL, I think, from 99. So it was obviously available to the householder then, wasn't it? Yeah, ADSL was, but um, BT had launched it, of course, as an 8-meg product. Yes. So it was in that mood. But what we actually did is we launched ADSL, but we actually fully unbundled the network. So we actually did a data-only network, essentially, into the exchange and then converted, put the voice over voice data yeah, yeah. at the exchange right. and did a converged next-generation network from the core right through. And that network's still running to this day, and we've got best part of 4 million customers still on that network. Of course, it's coming to the end of its life now, as Copper does. That was 2006. We launched it in November, and of those of you that might remember that at the time, we launched a free broadband in the package. So you were effectively cross-subsidising voice, line rental, and broadband was free. And we were signing 60,000 customers up a month. Right, yeah. uh, we were in serious trouble. <laughs> yes. Watchdog serious trouble. Oh, right. <laughs> so you're still with the business, aren't you? I mean, you're still an advisor to the group. Yes, I am. I'm still employed by the group technically, but I only work uh, part-time in the group now. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm an engineer. And when the group's involved in big engineering projects, I get more enthused. And when it's not, I do less. But, um, you know, we're back on the case again. So before we move on to your age investing... One or two things for entrepreneurs. Obviously, it would have been a tough time at times. Can you think of anything that stands out that you could advise people? I think the key things about entrepreneurs is when they get knocked over, they pick themselves up and dust themselves off and get on with it again. Like I said, everybody's forgotten the two businesses that failed, mm. and we remember the one that succeeded. So you just got to keep going. And, and there's some key things, isn't there? And, and one of the key things is if you're not adding value, don't expect to make a profit arbitrages only last so long. So any business that's got an arbitrage in it somewhere, you know, you'll be lucky to get much life out of it before somebody else jumps on the back of it or changes. 
And, you know, you're looking for disruption. If you're going to start a business, look for some disruption to give you the opportunity to get into an existing marketplace with, you know, whether it's a new product or a new way of doing things or something like that. And, um, you know, you've got to be different. If you join the Me Too Club, you very quickly get commoditized. And I'm sure you found that as an angel, that you've only backed businesses where they are going to be disruptive and add value. Absolutely. Same thing, absolutely the same principle. You're looking for value add. You're looking for some uniqueness, some disruption in there. You're looking at the management, really, because if you've got good management, you stand a fighting chance. And if you haven't, you're going to fail no matter how good the idea is. So, you know, the management's got to be sound. And you're certainly looking for the quality of the idea. And my own preference is technology. And my further preference would be services in technology. I think developing products in technology in the UK is tough because of the competition from abroad. Whereas services, I think we can be quite smart on there. And I guess, you know, when I stand up in business schools and talk to people who are thinking of starting a business, the one big thing I would say to people is that business is a lottery. And, you know, to win a lottery, you need six numbers. And I've never met an entrepreneur yet that's had more than four. You know, I think I had three. I think Charles Dunstan had four. The facts are, you know, somebody else has got the other numbers. Right. And you've got to find them. And, you know, an entrepreneur who owns the six numbers, I don't think exists. If you look at all the big entrepreneurs who've run really successful business, there'll be a few people in the shadows who contributed to the other numbers. So these are the numbers of people, aren't they? The rest of the team. Well, it's yeah, it's the rest of the team, you know, because the facts are if you've got five numbers in a lottery, you get 10 quid. And yes. if you get six, you get 10 million. Yes. And that's why you've got to find the six numbers. So I think it's really important you look in a mirror. Have a good look at yourself and think, have I got the six numbers? Because I'd be pretty unique if I have. I probably haven't. And where are my deficiencies? And how do I go about filling in those deficiencies? Right. So when was your first angel investment? Was it in the early 2000s? Or? I've been dabbling in angel investing, I suppose, now for the best part of 20 years. So it was certainly before the exit. But at post-exit, of course, you've got a bit more cash rattling around in the pocket. And, you know, entrepreneurs don't do 3% in the bank, do they? <laughs> so, you know, I've been investing in all sorts. It's always been tech. Yes. You know, I, I don't tend to invest in stuff that's not tech. My view of risk and other people's is somewhat different. So it's usually pretty high risk. Yes. You know, pre-IPO stuff. Well, that's the stuff I do, as you know. Well, the group that was skiing here today. Yeah. So how many opportunities have you invested in, do you think? If I was guessing over the last 15 years, 40, 50 40, maybe, yes, okay. a lot. You know, obviously there's some big wins in there and some classic failures like you'd expect. And what have you learned from those big wins and failures? Look at the management for sure. You know, management, management, management. Business is about people. Mm. So look at the people and then first the idea, second, you know, make sure that there's some uniqueness and they can add some value because you've got to get some oxygen. You know, if a business survives two years, it'll usually survive much beyond mm. You know, and certainly when you go in pre-IPO, you can always wait for the call for the second round, can't you? you know, yes, yes. Hopefully right. the business has you know, added some value and the second round doesn't dilute everybody mm. too much. So be prepared for the second round. I think it's always good if there's some corporate finance people on the edge of it because they're usually providing advice, mentoring, because I've never had a lot of time to mentor my investments, you know, and they keep people fairly straight. They're also looking for the IPO opportunity. Yes. Because you've always got to guide people from those startup situations through. They've always got to have a view of where this is going to end. And for an investor, it's often ended with an IPO. For the management, it might not. might be a trade sale, might be an IPO. So, so of your successes, how many have been IPOs? How many have been trades? Is it half yeah, and half? or Maybe probably more on the IPO side because in Manchester, we've got a very, very rich angel investing community. 
And, you know, we tend to invest in groups with the backing of small corporate finance houses. And, you know, our view is generally anything, any money people are looking for under two million tends to be angel investing. Right. So it's usually a collection of 10 angels, put up a couple of hundred grand for a couple of million. We've usually got some due diligence done by the corporate finance people. They've usually put the chairman on the board. They might put an exec on. Gives you a bit of comfort. And they'll have a view thinking, we're going to run this for a couple of years and IPO it. Yeah, that's so different from Cambridge, as you know, the southeast. Mm. You know, where the angels hang together as a group. And one of the angels then goes onto the board. And we don't have the corporate finances around in the same way. Yeah, I'm talking about small corporate finance houses. Really, I call them super angels or angel aggregators that sort of pull the relationships of the angels together. It is slightly different. I, it is, because they'll take a fee, won't they, for their work, I guess? Um, well, they usually take equity themselves. Okay, good. You know? uh, which they pay for? Or? Rarely, I would suggest. Right. But, you know, the big value add, of course, is they're really going to only do it if they can see an IPO out of it. Right. And they've usually been all over the management right. for that. And the few investments I've done when I've not had that kind of backing, they've tended to be much rougher rides, right. for sure. And they've been more from the heart than the head because I've really liked out of the people or the technology involved in that. Yeah, we'll talk about Manchester a bit more in the moment, but you've done a huge amount with your big charity, property development, etc. So that's why you haven't really had time to sit on boards and assist companies, isn't it? Yeah, well, I never really left Talk Talk, of course. You know, So that really precludes me from going doing anything too much with boards in telecoms. And you know, I'm involved in the universities you know, in Manchester, mm. which is a very exciting place. You know, We run a very large charity, which is a very exciting place, and... You know, entrepreneurs, you know, once you've got some money in your pocket and it's burning a hole, you tend to do something with it. You know, mm-hmm. we don't sit on beaches terribly well. You've done a huge amount of work for your local town, haven't you? Yeah. I was born in a steel town and, quite frankly, it suffered very badly from mid-70s onwards and we've been slowly putting it back together. You know, it's pretty respectable now. And you also set up the Manchester Tech Trust. Can we talk about that as well? Yes, the Manchester Tech Trust, crikey. We did quite a big piece of work a couple of years ago where we were looking at the technology and enterprise market in Manchester and what the state was like. And we were staggeringly surprised by how much was going on and how little of it was visible. And the phrase that we use is that Manchester had managed to get the reality above its hype. You know, and that's not a great place to be. Mm. The good news is it means there's a lot to tell and a lot you can do. The bad news is it's a marketing problem rather than an actual problem of lack of entrepreneurs or lack of opportunity. And if you contrast that with Cambridge, where Cambridge has managed to absolutely get its halo shining and everybody knows about it, everybody's heard of Cambridge Angels. And in truth, you know, I think you've probably got your hype slightly above your reality, but that's where it should be. You know, that's how you grow a business, isn't it? You know, you get your hype up and you pull the reality up to the hype. Well, Manchester's not done that. And the trust is really about trying to get the academic sectors. We've got two major universities in Manchester and arguably four in total in Greater Manchester, you know, trying to get the universities working with the public sector to get the visibility of what's going on in Manchester higher. And the agenda is slowly building. The visibility of finance in Manchester now, we run a website and we run drop-in centres for entrepreneurs we run them every couple of months. You know, we probably run 20, find 20 new entrepreneurs every couple of months. We're signposting them to finance. We're mentoring them. You know, we're building up a network now. And, um, you know, it's great working with you guys in Cambridge to see how you've done it with your angel investing. 
we're trying to replicate some of that and we're trying to get Manchester to have what's unique about Manchester. Yeah, because you've also got a great pool of employees as well, haven't you? And subcontractors and other supply industry, much more so than we have. Oh, yeah. I mean, Manchester's obviously a bigger geographical area than Cambridge. And, you know, we were talking the other night, weren't we? And its population is considerably bigger. So if you're going to scale something, you know, Manchester's a good place. But the great thing about Cambridge, of course, it's nice and compact. It's really focused in the centre around the universities with people who've got some association. A lot of investing in Manchester is not associated with the university at all. A tremendous number of entrepreneurs, a lot of tech entrepreneurs, but the university doesn't have the same focus as it does in Cambridge. And that's something that we're also trying to address to get the university more enthused about enterprise and technology transfer, and it, and it is doing. And we're getting more visibility on that. So that, that's what the trust's all about. Yes, in fact, in Cambridge, if you look at my investments, uh, the ones in Cambridge, of which there are probably about 25, only about five or so came out of the university. The rest yeah. are just because Cambridge is full of entrepreneurs. And I'm sure Manchester is as well. It's a matter of finding them, contacting them, helping them and backing yeah. them if you can. Well, it's crawling with them, actually. You know, these days, it's actually a career consideration for graduates, isn't it? Mm. You know, be an entrepreneur, you know, have a go, you know. Mm. And there's certainly more money flying around than there was in my day. The one thing I would say, though, is that when you spot them in the university, it's really easy to sort of coax them, grab them and point them in the direction because, you know, they're in an environment that's got visibility of it. But entrepreneurs that then come out of the rest of industry or the woodwork from a different direction, they're a bit harder to spot. They're a bit harder to get into the community. And they want to join the community because they need to find these other numbers in the lottery game. Right. You know, so what we're trying to do is create a real network of people, of like-minded people who are trying to, work with other people you know it can be pretty lonely out there for an entrepreneur and um, you know you usually need some mates and we're trying to create that network which is why the incubators and any accelerators you have will make a big difference absolutely and those are turning up all over the place now we've got a very very rich availability i think of workspaces if call them or incubator centers accelerator centers you know they, they are really popping up and we've really got them visible now and the report that we produce is which has been published it's public domain. You know, we've really tried to identify the art to everybody. And it really does, it supports the point, really, that the reality is there and the narrative of Manchester needs to really come up to that reality. And so that's what's next, is it? You obviously want to improve that. And it deserves things to improve in Manchester. So what's missing apart from time? What else could be brought in to help? I think it is communication. And, you know, we are trying to be that super communicator. The venture capital companies are turning up. The ones that are there are doing well. Because Manchester's probably not so well-known, there's a lot not there that would probably be there if it was so well-known. Mm. You know, Cambridge's also pretty close to London, so mm. you can plug into London a bit easier. I mean, said that, we're only two hours from the train. It's no big Soon deal. Soon to be one and a half yeah. of two. <laughs> I do think that we are getting a really good finance community there. The money is definitely there in Manchester. You know, the communication of it all and really getting that halo that you've managed to achieve in Cambridge, you know, shining over perhaps the universities in Manchester you know, we'll really start to make, not just the entrepreneurs, but the big tech companies start to think, why are we not in Manchester? Mm. You know, and we are having some big wins now with tech companies coming because, you know, obviously Cambridge is pretty hot. You know, it's got limited resources. It might be. You know, Manchester's not as hot as Cambridge and London. You know, we've got some fantastic academics in Manchester. You know, we're churning out some high-quality graduates, especially in things like material science and computer science and, you know, some other good tech biotechs and stuff like that. We've got some really good resources there and getting large companies as well to understand what's at Manchester. And then, of course, some of them are getting involved in corporate venturing. And we want them to do that in Manchester.
Yes. Okay, before I ask you the final question, which you don't know what it is yet, <laughs> can I just apologise again to listeners that this is actually being done in an apartment in Les Arc, in one of the bedrooms here, and so the quality will not be as good as some of the other. But anyway, it's really great to spend some time with Neil, as I do once or twice a year. So the final question, Neil, is that I happen to know that you're only 10 weeks difference in age. What are you going to be doing in another five or 10 years' time? Well, I don't want my wife to hear this podcast, really, do we? Well, I think she will do, so I should definitely be cautious with what you say. The thing is, you know, if it's not in your nature to do nothing, isn't it? So I'm always going to be doing something. I mean, I'm on the board of Manchester University. I absolutely adore working at the university with great people. Gives you a good insight to where the science is going, which is fantastic. I'd be amazed if I'm not still involved in something in Manchester. You know, maybe five years, my talk talk days will have finished. The charity hopefully will carry on and... You know, I'm very fortunate. I've got a great lifestyle, great friends. I live just a few miles from where I was born. Like I say, I'm not someone that spends enormous amounts of time on the beach. I'm sure I won't be bored, Peter. Excellent. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you very very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investorinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content.